You're listening to Preservation Destination, the podcast where we explore the history of the built environment. Whether you are a preservation pro, dabbler, or just into fascinating history, you are in the right place. Join our host, Taylor Volz, as she interviews experts in the field of preservation as they pass their knowledge on to us. And here is your host of Preservation Destination, Taylor Volz. Welcome to this week's episode of Preservation Destination. Today, my guest is Russell Archer, the Historic Preservation Planner for the city of Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Welcome, Russell. Thank you, Taylor. Very glad to be with you today. Great. Um, Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do? Okay, sure thing. I am, uh, my current position is that I am the Historic Preservation Planner for the city of Hattiesburg, uh, Mississippi, and uh, that's in the southeast corner of the state. We are the home of uh, University of Southern Mississippi. That's how most folks uh, identify with us. And um, our city is um, about uh, 50,000 population uh, city limits, and we're about, we're over 100,000 metro. I work in the planning division at the city, and we handle a a broad variety of uh, activities related to Hattiesburg's planning and development, and as evidenced by my my title, my emphasis area is that I uh, I handle all the historic preservation activities for the city, and uh, that entails many things, so I'll I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. Okay. Yeah, we'll go into that a little bit later, um, but okay. let's start with let's start with your background. So you come from a background in hospitality management. Mm. How did you get from there to what you're doing now in historic preservation? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a valid question. I get that a lot. Uh, I um, took an interest in hospitality management uh, about halfway through my college career and decided to uh, to get into that that arena. At that point in time, I'm sure a lot of folks that are in preservation now can identify with this. At that point in time, I did not know that there was an option to go into historic preservation as a career. I just knew that it was something I was interested in and something that, you know, whenever I was traveling or, or uh, you know, going other places that that was those were my main interests. And and um, so after <laughs> I uh, went through school and actually started working in the restaurant industry here in Hattiesburg. I started to find out more about uh, historic preservation as, as a career path. It was it was definitely news to me that that, that was a career path, uh, but as you can imagine, I got very excited to, to know that that was possibly an option for me. I, I was very deep into my current, into my, my then career of a restaurant business and it was a little intimidating to to make a jump to something else, um, but I just felt like after about three years of of doing uh, the restaurant thing that that it was time for me to at least explore that that option. And I didn't know I had no idea if it would if it would you know come to fruition if it would play out, but I knew that I had, I needed to try um, just because it was a, a a passion area of mine. So um, you know, luckily. I took that risk and, and, and put in my notice at, at, at my restaurant job and went almost directly to Muncie, Indiana <laughs> mm-hmm. to, uh, to get, go to the historic preservation program there. And that's pretty much how I made the jump. 
Okay. I've heard, I've heard that story from a few people that said they, mm. they were interested, but they didn't know that mm. that was something you could go to school for or, or like mm. actually pursue as a regular career. So yeah, I, I right. definitely think that's, that's a pretty common answer for some people mm-hmm. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So you went uh, to, mm-hmm. go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, so you, you went to Ball State in Indiana mm-hmm. and you got a, master of science in historic preservation Mm -hmm. and can you talk about that like how that program is set up because Mm -hmm. I'm so used to what I did and most of my friends went to the same program that I did that I like Mm -hmm. to hear what everyone else did at their different you know different programs that they went through sure sure well, I can tell you that what attracted me to Ball State's program uh, in particular, and I, and I did, you know, of course, through the uh, course of doing my research, I found out that there were some programs that were closer to Mississippi. But really what helped me to uh, lean toward Ball State was that they seemed to have a fair, a fair amount of emphasis on the Main Street program and downtown revitalization and to an extent neighborhood revitalization. And those were really the things that that got me interested in historic preservation was the the, the prospect of um, of re reinvestment redevelopment of those areas. And Ball State is a little different from other programs in that the the program uh, first of all it, it's under the School of Architecture, which which the School of Architecture there is consistently ranked in the top five in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And that was attractive to me to be a part of something like that. And then I also knew that 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 this program was not as technically leaning as it was leaning toward policy and law and to an extent activism uh, in the preservation field. And those were the areas that that, uh, you know, that piqued my attention from the beginning. Uh, and I knew, like I said, that there were other programs out there that were more technical programs or more geared toward architectural history. And uh, and that was not quite at the top of my list whenever I was doing my research. So uh, ultimately, that Main Street component and the fact that that was sort of interwoven through the curriculum there was was really what helped me make my decision to go there. Okay. Yeah. That, that's the first one that I've um, heard of that that's had that the main street component that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Haven't come across any yet that, that have that. I mean, the mm-hmm. UNO has like a city planning master's degree that has preservation in it, but it, I don't think right. it's quite the same as that. So. Yeah. It's, and, and it's really a perfect fit, you know, once you kind of see how the two interrelate um, because you know, downtown revitalization really can't occur without being, you know, done in concert with historic preservation. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's it turned out to be really exactly what I was hoping for. It was just a, a nice way to tie the two together and um, and allowed me to have a, a much better understanding of how that program worked and and how effective it was uh, or is and. Uh, and so, you know, Hattiesburg is a Main Street community. So, mm-hmm. our uh, we have a downtown association that is our Main Street program uh, falls under their umbrella. And you know, I've become very involved in that association and, and serve on some of their committees and, and things like that. And it's very helpful, you know, to have had that Main Street exposure early on. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it sounds like like you pretty much are doing now like exactly what you <laughs> what you <laughs> went to school for, which is seems not everybody gets to say that. So <laughs> it sounds pretty good. Well, you're you're exactly right, and and I do feel uh, lucky and uh, fortunate to to be doing what I'm doing. And I, it wasn't a direct path, but I did end up here, and that's what's important. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of of not a direct path, let's talk about the work that you did at the Mississippi Department of Archives and History. So you you were there from 2006 to 2010 as a technical specialist. Um, what what does that mean, and what kind of work were you doing there? Yeah, I, I was hired on, and I think I was actually there till 2011. I, I, I did my math wrong, but um, I was there about five years, and I was hired on as a technical preservation specialist, which, uh, given what I just shared <laughs> with Ball State not having as much of an emphasis on technical preservation, that was a little bit of a uh, getting out of my comfort zone when I accepted that position, um, because essentially what the purpose of that position was to work directly with folks who are undertaking preservation projects uh, and and do technical reviews of their projects and look at architectural plans and to sort of verify that everything is uh, in keeping with the Secretary of the Interior Standards for Rehabilitation. And, you know, I just, I I sort of had to do a lot of on-the-job training (laughs) uh, when I got there because I didn't, I wasn't as confident in my technical knowledge uh, as some folks who, who went to other schools may have been. But that turned out to be a really a great way to, to really, it sort of necessitated that I learn more about that. And so it was a good way for me to segue into the technical side. But while I was there, I had an opportunity to move away from that technical side more into the, there was a program called the Mississippi Landmark Program, which was, was a, a sort of a close cousin to what, what, a lot of local, uh, a lot of local municipalities have as as a landmark rec- recognition program. Excuse me, and um, I was able to to become the coordinator of that program, which was a statewide program. And so I, you know, in the time that I was there, I kind of transitioned from the technical side a little bit more toward the uh, being involved with you know public projects and and not-for-profits and that and that type of thing uh so that was that was a good good another good way for me to be exposed to a couple of different aspects of preservation mm-hmm. well the, i mean that was going to be my next question i was mm-hmm. going to ask you about the mississippi landmark program because mm-hmm. it we don't i don't think we have something like that here in louisiana mm-hmm. so i was kind of curious yeah. how how it works in mississippi mm-hmm yeah, it's um, Mississippi has a statewide antiquities law, and um, it dates back to um, I believe the 1960s, if I remember correctly. And that that law enables a uh, historic resource to be designated as a Mississippi landmark, which is the highest level of recognition that we have in the state for for a historic resource. And um, primarily, uh, what the the structures that are designated landmarks are publicly owned and also owned by uh, not-for-profits. And the reason why that is is because the 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 state archives and what most people call the SHPO has the ability through the through this antiquities law to actually initiate a, a landmark designation 
uh, with or without the owner's consent. Um, oh. and, okay. and this is that would only apply, of course, to publicly owned buildings. And so going all the way back to the 1980s, the, the, the state archives began assessing resources throughout the state. And, of course, not all at one time, but over the course of several decades, they were able to identify the most important publicly owned buildings in the state that, of course, retained uh, a fair level of, of, of integrity and name those Mississippi landmarks. And once they're named a landmark, they are uh, basically a preservation easement is placed on the property in perpetuity. Okay. okay. And so and what that means in, in, you know, in common terms and what it means to the, to the entity that has control over the building is that any project that they undertake for that particular building going forward falls under technical review through the state archives. Okay. So in addition to, you know, what they would typically do on the local level as far as building, pulling building permits and getting, you know, technical reviews done that way, they also have to pass it through the state to make sure that it meets the Secretary of the Interior standards. And so um, that's, you know, the, the gist of the program. And it actually, there, there, there are, there's another avenue that a building can be designated, and that's if 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 a owner, whether they be private or not for profit, comes forward and requests that it be designated, and so they they do that with the understanding that that easement will be placed on the building, that they will have to you know from that point forward uh, work in concert with the state archive with the shipo on any kind of improvement projects, and um, you know I think it really speaks a lot to you know the long term vision that 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 people have. For, for their buildings and for their resources to say, you know, yes, this is a little bit regulatory and, and um, more than, you know, adds an extra layer onto our project, but the building is important enough to us mm. to have that involvement. So, you know, as you can imagine, it really, it doesn't ensure, but it certainly increases the chances that that, that building will be a lot, be around for a long time. Mm-hmm. So how many, do you know how many buildings are on the Landmark program? Oh, well, let's see. Um, I believe that when, at the time that I left, I think that there were just just over a thousand buildings in, okay. in the state that, okay. had, that had that designation. And these are, again, probably the most common types of resources that would have that designation would be schools, courthouses, mm-hmm. city halls. In some cases, hospitals, you know, for example, county hospitals, you know, being a, pub, a public building. So those, those are those probably make up, you know, more, more than uh, more than half of all the designations um, just because, like I mentioned, of the early history of the program. And um, and then there's quite a few that that have never been out, been in public ownership. They've always been under private ownership. But again, they might have an oversight you know, committee or something like that that just kind of saw fit to pursue the designation. Is there one, like, maybe that you think is maybe the most famous or more famous one that you can think of that our listeners might know off the top of their head? Or mm. is it all just, like, you know, school buildings <laughs> and stuff? <laughs> no, it's, it's a, it's, there's a wide variety of buildings you know, if, if you've spent any time, like, like in, in the Jackson area, for example, the a lot of the public buildings along Capitol Street, which 
Mississippi is a little bit unique. We have an, what we call an old capital and a new capital. And uh, the old capital is, is antebellum. It's, it dates back to, to, I think, the 1830s. And the new capital is, uh, was built in the early 19th or early 20th century. And uh, it's funny that we still call it new, but it, it's the newer of the two. So both of those, of course, are Mississippi landmarks. And there are a couple of house museums in Jackson that are Mississippi landmarks. It, uh, a lot of folks are familiar with Natchez, Mississippi. It's a big tourism uh, community. And uh, they have a very, very large number of antebellum structures there. And a good handful of those are designated landmarks. And as I mentioned, those, those are, in most cases, privately owned or owned by a not-for-profit. And in those cases, you know, they saw fit to come forward and, and request the designation so that they could have uh, some confidence that the building would have some oversight, you know, going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's quite a few, and, and, they're, and they vary as far as the type of resource that they are. We even have some archaeological sites that are, uh, that are Mississippi landmarks. Um, oh, okay. The uh, uh, Indian Mounds, you know, we have Winterville Mounds in, in the, mm-hmm. up in the Mississippi Delta, which, which is a Mississippi landmark. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's an interesting program because it does cover, cover quite a bit. We even have bridges that are Mississippi landmarks. And uh, I think there's a, a battleship in Vicksburg. <laughs> so wow. It's quite, it's quite interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's really neat. It, you know, it's, I kind of like that sort of middle step, like that, Mm -hmm. that we, we don't have here, you know, we have local Mm -hmm. districts and designations, and then we have like, Mm -hmm. you know, we do national register stuff, but there's no Mm -hmm. statewide listing. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be, that's not very common, is it? There's not a lot of states that do that. It, it does, it's not that common at all. Yeah. Um, I know that Texas has a landmark program. Uh, we, and I think that uh, we sort of played off of each other as we were developing the programs um, because there's a lot of similarities. But, but it is rare because, you know, it, it's, not a, uh, it's not a small feat to place a, preser- a perpetual preservation easement on a, on a structure. Um, but it does give, it does help us, those of us that are, interested in old buildings and, and, and their long-term use, it really gives us a little bit of an extra comfort level <laughs> knowing that there's yeah. some, some oversight over those. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad I asked yeah. you about that because that, that yeah. definitely piqued my <laughs> interest for sure. <laughs> yes. So, so let's, let's move forward and talk about after you worked at the Department of Archives, you mm-hmm branched out and you started your own preservation consulting business mm-hmm. and you worked on a bunch of different projects including the survey and documentation to expand the hub city national register district in Hattiesburg mm-hmm. so uh, I know how much work it takes <laughs> to <laughs> survey especially around uh, to do like a whole neighborhood and part of a city did you do that whole mm-hmm. project by yourself or did you have help with that I, uh, yeah, I was a, uh, I was an independent consultant and I did not have any employees. And so I did take, I did take that on by myself and, um, it, I had not taken on a project of that size, um, prior to that. So it was an eye opener, <laughs> mm-hmm. but at the same time being Hattiesburg and you know, I was very familiar with the city and with our resources, you know, I, I, I felt comfortable going, you know, from, from the beginning, that it was doable 
you know, in the allotted time frame that we had, we were working under a, a, a state grant, you know, from the SHPO. And, uh-huh. uh, of course, they had some guidelines as far as how, how um, you know, the time frame that the project had to be completed within and that type of thing. But um, the other thing that helped in that case is that the, the Hub City National Register District is, is that's essentially that is that is our downtown, our commercial district um, is what that consists of. And they had already created the district previously just with a smaller number of resources. And this was, I think, at the point where the city recognized that there were resources outside of just the very core of our downtown area mm-hmm. that had now reached that, you know, over 50-year benchmark and needed to be uh, evaluated. And so we, the district had about 88 resources as it stood. And so whenever I came in, what I did is I, I surveyed a larger boundary area and ultimately, it, uh, we expanded it to 203 resources, so wow. it more than doubled in size. You know, as I said, that was largely due to the fact that when they first surveyed for the district, it was in the 80s, and there were quite a few buildings that, that were important to our downtown that had not hit that 50-year mark, and so it, it, uh, they, they were left out. They were found non-contributing um, or just decided to be left out of the boundary area. And so when we came back and looked at it in 2012, you know, we were taking everything into account that was older than 1962 being our period of significance. So that really opened the door for some very interesting, you know, mid-century buildings, for example, Mm -hmm. and uh, even some buildings that were sort of on the far peripherals of the downtown that uh, were probably of age at that time, but it didn't make sense to make that jump. You know, it was such a geographic jump from the core of downtown to where some of these structures are. So, yeah, it worked out great. Uh, we were able to more than double our district. And we, that, interestingly enough, that is our only national register district that does not also have a local district overlay. Okay. Um, and it's something that we're working on as far as pulling that under, become that becoming a local district under under, under city ordinance. But as of right now, only a uh, national register district okay Uh, so that's our only example of that okay (laughs) yeah i i had the opportunity to help last year Mm -hmm. um with when hammond uh, was doing Mm -hmm. a similar project and they were looking to expand their district and they they hired a consultant calhoun preservation who just happens to be a friend Mm -hmm. of mine and she recruited some people to come help her some volunteers and some interns to, to come because it, it was just so, it was so many and they had the same issue. They had, they had some buildings that, and, and Hattiesburg actually has a a really good, I want to say selection, but that's not probably not the Mm -hmm. best word of of mid-century of mid-century homes and other buildings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so they, there was some of that, like trying to make sure they captured those Mm -hmm. and, some other things that, like you said, were sort of on the edge and maybe right. not right in the in the center part. So, mm-hmm. and I just remember like how huge of a project that <laughs> was. Yes. <laughs> I can just imagine like, and she had like three or four of us helping her, and mm-hmm. just doing that all on your own. I just mm-hmm. I can't even imagine that be so much. Yeah, stuff. <laughs> it, it it definitely was a full time job, you know, and then some <laughs> mm-hmm. during the time that I was doing the field work and. And, and, you know, even though the, the 
nomination had already been written, you know, whenever it was designated the first time. I had to expand also on the narrative part of it because I had to uh, explain why, you know, the buildings that, that were a little bit younger were now significant enough to be included. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you, 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 in most cases, you can't just say that they're important based on their age alone. You know, you have to sort of show how they have contributed to the patterns of development in Hattiesburg and how they've become an integral part of the, of the commercial district and that type of thing. So, you know, it was a little, a little challenging to, to put all that together in a cohesive way, but, but ultimately it, it turned out great. So we're, we're real pleased with it. And we're actually, you know, as I mentioned, we're, we're looking at making the downtown a local district, which would, would, would bring it under the purview of our, of our historic commission. But, in doing that, we're kind of taking we're kind of taking that expansion approach one more uh, going one more step with it because we're looking at a couple of corridors leading into downtown that have some mid-century buildings that we feel those corridors are important to to protect and preserve as well. And so they are not included in the National Register district, but we're proposing that they be included in the local district so mm-hmm. that not just the downtown area but the corridors coming into downtown which we which we feel give it part of its character and sort of set the stage for you know what what to expect there those would all be included in in that local district so that would actually bring our number up to about 255 resources in in the district uh you know which which is a large number but many of our other districts are primarily residential and some of those are three to four hundred residences so we're we're used to having having some larger areas to deal with. Mm-hmm. So would you say that that was your favorite project that you did while working as a consultant, or did you have something else? That yeah, would... I definitely would say that was my favorite. Yeah. Um, just because I got to dig into you know to the history of the buildings and really you know take a closer look at the architecture, you know all the things that I appreciated growing up here that I just really didn't have the context to help me appreciate them and that then I was able to delve into it a little bit deeper and that it was it, it definitely was I'm, I'm happy that I was awarded the the uh, project and happy that it turned out the way it did it was it was mm-hmm. an exciting project that sounds really cool yeah yeah so currently you are the historic preservation planner for the city of Hattiesburg which mm-hmm. I said earlier <laughs> Can you tell us uh, what all that position entails? Yeah, it um, as I mentioned earlier, it, it's primarily my my job description is to oversee and coordinate our designated historic districts, which almost exclusively our districts are under local designation with a smaller portion of the district designated as a national registered district. And so what what I do in my role is to coordinate any type of permitting and review projects that occur within those districts, um, whether it be, you know, uh, something under a private ownership or, you know, a business owner or a public entity, uh, you know, regardless of the case, we, we, if it falls within those boundaries, we have an extra layer of review and, and protection over those projects. So I deal, uh, most of our districts are residential. And so I deal a lot with homeowners and 
you know, just doing projects that you would expect, you know, that, 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 that folks are interested in, such as, you know, maybe they want to add a porch or a deck or they want to enclose a porch or enclose a deck <laughs> or mm -hmm. they need, they have some, you know, things that they have some wood rot that they need to repair and replace. They have, you know, issues with windows or doors. Maybe the driveway is inadequate for what they need. And so, you know, we, we look at all those aspects as being part of the, of the historic significance. And so once they actually come to the city with their project, then I sort of serve as the liaison between, uh, you know, them and the city, helping them along with their projects to, to make sure that everything is accomplished within our, our guidelines and within our, our city's procedures. So that, that's the majority of what I do. I'm, I'm very, very fortunately allowed some time for special projects. And um, so I take a percentage of my, of my work, uh, work week and, and devote it toward uh, projects that I just feel are, uh, you know, sort of help advance the, the, the cause of preserving our resources. And, uh, you know, an example is trying to get a better handle on which properties that we have that are vacant uh, or abandoned. And so okay. I work very closely with our code enforcement division to uh, document those and try to inventory them and keep keep close track of them so we can figure out ways to, you know, to, to get those back in check, uh, whether that be, you know, for someone to come in, uh, for the owner to come in and rehab it or for them to turn it over to another person who would be willing to do that. But you know, of course, our primary goal is to keep it around, put it back on the tax rolls, and uh, that's not always possible, but we certainly, you know, strive for that. So that's really kind of a passion project for mine is for us to get a better handle on that. I'm, I'm very, uh, if you ask anyone that works with me, they'll probably tell you that the thing that I'm most uh, vocal about is that I feel that demolition should be a very last resort, mm -hmm. and uh, the, the, the city has not always taken that stance, especially from the code enforcement perspective. And we've we've seen some uh, some structures go away that really should not have because they they really, you know, some it may be a structure where their their worst offense is that they need paint and a, and a couple of steps replaced. Uh, wow. But it's an eyesore for the neighborhood, and you know the knee jerk reaction is that it should go away. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I I'm 100% against that philosophy. Uh, so a lot of what I do uh, lately, especially, is is partnering with code enforcement to try to figure out alternatives to demolition. And, um, you know, and, and, and it's not, it's not, that's not always possible to, uh, you know, for preservation to be the outcome. But, you know, the plan B, in my eyes, is that if, if, if the writing is on the wall, so to speak, and the structure is going to go away, Let's not put it in a truck and take it to the landfill. Mm -hmm. You know, let's look for opportunities to deconstruct, salvage, and, you know, try to, if there are any components of the house that can be, you know, put to further use uh, in, a, in another location, then let's, by all means, let's do that. Uh, just, you know, just to be responsible stewards. And uh, the city has a sustainability um um, resolution through our through our mayor and council and it's something that we've recently formed a commission to kind of oversee and uh, and and I'm going to be working very closely with them uh, as well as you can imagine to make sure that 
that we're that we're looking at every option possible that we're trying to find every tool that maybe tools that we haven't used before to 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 try to try to curtail some of the unnecessary demolitions and uh and you know we're not the only ones dealing with that uh you can look at larger metro areas and they're they have huge numbers of demolition going on just uh you know it's not the building's fault it's 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 the fault it's it's the fact that that there's there's blight or perceived blight and mm-hmm. the the quickest way to remedy that is to make it go away and create a field you know mm-hmm. and and I'm uh, like I said I'm 100% against that philosophy sometimes it's it's sometimes I'm the lone voice in the wind <laughs> but uh but I think I'm starting to get through to a few folks <laughs> mm-hmm. so it sounds like there's there's a level of advocacy work that mm-hmm. that you're that you're doing you know to to keep those resources Mm-hmm. So they don't yeah, disappear. You're right, and it's it's um, you know, it's one of those things where you might you might mention it to someone, and they kind of look at you sideways and say, "Where you know, where are you coming from on this?" Because uh, it may not be something. It's it's not it's untested waters in a lot of cases, and so mm-hmm. and so my my role in this is to try to share with them, you know, the importance of looking at the big picture and. You know, the fact that it doesn't help our downtown and it doesn't help a neighborhood for, you know, them to have an increasing number of vacant lots. And uh, and it also, you know, chips away, you know, at our very identity. Uh, you know, the folks that, that developed our city did so in a very thoughtful and conscientious manner. They created something they could be proud of. They created something that they, you know, that they formed their entire quality of life around. And for us to dismantle that you know unnecessarily is just you know in my opinion it's just very uh we're going down the wrong track and i don't just mean the city i just mean that we have long uh, a little bit of a track record of uh of of even you know just not doing the things that we should be doing to try to curtail that Mm -hmm. your position reminds me a lot of the like i said in in hammond there's a a very similar Mm -hmm position they just have one person that sort of handles mm-hmm. all of the stuff for the city but mm-hmm. but in in Hammond they have like a commission that she sort of works under that I guess are mm-hmm. sort of selected or elected somehow by the city and then they're right. also involved it does does Hattiesburg mm-hmm. have a similar commission or something like that mm-hmm. yeah we do um we we're we're a certified local government so uh, I'm sure most people are familiar with what that means, but it, it once you have that designation, uh, it then you have the uh, the ability to form a preservation commission, or some people call it a conservation commission. That's actually what we call it. That commission is put into place uh, as a volunteer board. It's appointed by the mayor uh, and 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 um, ratified by the council, and the the sole purpose of the commission is to undertake these preservation related activities. And primarily that means, you know, reviewing applications for certificates of appropriateness, which is kind of the, the, always describe it to folks is, you know, this is the historic version of the building permit. You know, Mm -hmm. if you have the certificate of appropriateness, that means that you have the green light to go forward with your project. Of course, you know, in concert with a traditional building permit. But our commission, our conservation commission is in place and they meet once a month. It's a nine member board and they're all professionals in in their fields. We try to be very 
selective about who you know who we uh, bring on to that board because we definitely want people who have a a preservation philosophy and and with preservation being so interdisciplinary you know it helps us to have folks like architects designers historians real estate professionals lawyers you know and we have all those represented right now on our commission so it's a nice uh, and, uh, you know, at the very least, it's a, it's a nice sounding board and a nice resource to have behind behind you, behind someone in my position, uh, you know, to, to, to kind of help with that, help with all the activities that I'm in charge of. They definitely serve a great purpose. So I wanted to touch back on you, you kind of talked about this a little bit when you were, you were describing what you do in your position. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to talk about like the type of governances that the city places on the historic districts mm -hmm. and, and what your process is for reviewing the sites to make sure mm -hmm. that they're compliant with those regulations. Well, when we went through the process of creating our historic districts, and these are, these are the districts that are, that are locally designated through city ordinance. Part of that process is we adopted a set of design guidelines that the Historic Conservation Commission uses to guide their decisions. And so, um, uh, you know, everyone, anyone who's ever had contact with the Preservation or Conservation Commission will tell you it's the most important thing for them to do is to lean on those design guidelines and not be arbitrary or random about the way they make decisions. That's just, that's, you know, just going down the wrong path and shooting yourself in the foot, as they say, if you're, if you're being random about the decisions you're making. So we have a set of design guidelines, which are uh, explicitly based upon the secretary of interior standards for rehabilitation. And those guidelines apply to exterior only. So we do not, as a commission, we do not look at any type of interior work uh, mm -hmm. for, for any of our buildings in our districts. Um, the only time an interior would ever be looked at for one of our historic buildings is if it's a Mississippi landmark. And in that case, the interior would be looked at by the state SHPO versus us on the local level. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of defer to them for those larger projects. But we have those guidelines in place that we've adopted. So when a project comes forward, when an applicant comes forward asking to do to make an exterior change, then the first thing that our commission does is is to refer to those to make sure that they're in keeping with those guidelines. You know, they're they are based upon what is architecturally correct, what's what's correct to the era or the period of the building. They're also based on what else you know, what other representations are in the neighborhood could be something that you don't see very often in, in, in the work in the realm of preservation, but it's specific to one neighborhood. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if you see that pattern repeated, then even if it's not explicitly addressed in the design guidelines, you have some standing to say that that's appropriate for that neighborhood because it's a, you know, because it's a unique feature. So our getting back to your original question, our, our, commission will review those applications, make sure they're in keeping with the design guidelines. If they are, in fact, in keeping, then they will approve a certificate of appropriateness. And that certificate of appropriateness is, is necessary in order for the applicant to go forward with their project. The way we have it set up, and not every city does this, but I'm glad that we do, we have our electronic tracking system that we use for all of our building permits. 
it is tied to our GIS mapping, which has the boundaries of the historic districts plugged in. Okay. And so if any, if any project within those boundaries comes up on that tracking system, it will flag it. And they cannot go forward with issuing a building permit until they have verification from, from me, from our department, that it's gone through the proper channels for historic review. The way we treat scopes of work, the, you know, what the project entails is that we sort of put that work into two different categories. If it is in-kind repair or replacement, something that does not result in a change of appearance at all, um, then we do a staff review and approval for that to try to streamline the process a little bit. Okay. Um, the thing the thing that triggers the Historic uh, Conservation Commission to, to need to review a project is if it does result in a change of appearance. So uh, to give you an example, if someone comes and says, I have a, you know, a tongue and groove uh, uh, decking on my front porch and it's rotted and I need to replace it and I'm going to replace it with tongue and groove wood decking, then I, that's a staff approval. There's no reason really for the commission to look at that because that falls more into the realm of maintenance, you know, regular maintenance and upkeep and uh, it's in-kind materials. You're not, they're not changing anything about the materials or the appearance. So mm -hmm. we, uh, that's a way that we can streamline the process a little bit for the applicant. You know, as you can imagine, it's really important for us to uh, show them that we're, we're not trying to, to be that extra red tape <laughs> in their project that right. we're actually just sort of looking to be their partner and, and, uh, help them through the permit process. I think by and large, they, they understand that and appreciate it. And, uh, you know, we, we, we have great experiences dealing with the homeowners for the most part, <laughs> yeah. but that's, that's in a rather large nutshell. That's how we handle uh, applications. And, uh, and again, it's only for exterior changes. So, uh, sometimes we'll get someone to put in a permit for, you know, remodeling a kitchen or a bathroom and they're really worried that the bathroom may not be, you know, may not be specific to the 1935 construction date of the house. And so they come in and they're nervous and we say, guess what? You, you can turn your kitchen and your bathroom into whatever you'd like to. Yeah. There is no, <laughs> there's no review. So. Okay. Okay. So do, do you ever like actually have to physically go out and just make sure that people are doing what they're what you've approved for them to do you know like that porch for example would you ever just go and just make sure that they actually replaced it with wood or yeah absolutely um i do that on kind of an informal basis we don't have any sort of document or uh or procedures that mandate that but i i go i just make point to, um, you know, in most cases, I get to know the applicant fairly well, you know, just to kind of establish a rapport with them. And so um, when I follow up with them, it's, 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 it's part inspection and part, you know, courtesy visit <laughs> okay. to, uh, to make sure that, uh, that we've done, you know, that we've assisted them in every way that we can. But it's, it is important, it's very important that that we verify, you know, field verify that the work is done the way it's supposed to. And on occasion, it's not. And when it's not, it really becomes a code enforcement issue. And we work with them. In some cases, we'll bring it back to the commission and say, is this acceptable, you know, under the guidelines that they that they veered away from, you know, the, the original scope of work. And um, 
and if it's acceptable, then uh, we'll just amend the certificate of appropriateness. If it's not acceptable, then it becomes a code enforcement issue, and it's something that that they're required to to reverse and 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 go back with the original uh, submittal. And you know that's 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 definitely not something that we enjoy doing. Uh, and and that's that's why we try to make it as try to make the process as transparent as we can, and try to make it clear from the get-go that uh, you know that only the the items that are approved are what you have clearance to do, and uh, and some people sometimes people will call pick up the phone a after you know either in the middle of the project or maybe they've just finished. Oh, I totally forgot. I, I really wanted to do this as part of that project, and I just totally forgot to put it on my application. And so, just depending on the nature of what that project is, you know, we might just go ahead and fold it into the certificate, or we may say, you know, that's substantial enough to where you really need, you know, another visit to the commission so that they can uh, review it. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it is just sort of a case by case basis, but you know, but we always we always make it a priority to to stick to our procedures and our design guidelines, but we also make it a priority to do everything we can from the customer service perspective, you know, because mm -hmm. when a citizen comes in, you know, we, we view them as being a valuable customer and, and we want to make sure that we don't leave them with a bad taste in their mouth. So uh, anything I can do personally, as far as give them technical direction, you know, let them know uh, different resources for materials and that type of thing. You know, I definitely don't mind doing that because that just helps make, make it smoother. Mm-hmm. Do you have, I, I didn't put this in the questions, but do you have some brochures or other resources that you point people to when, when they need help with that kind of stuff? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, um, you know, they have access to the design guidelines. And so in a lot of cases, we just recommend that they look at the guidelines before they even put it in an application to make sure that they're, you know, on the right track uh, with their request. And then we also direct them toward, uh, you know, some of the more popular resources that you can find online, such as the preservation briefs and mm -hmm. the technical bulletins that are all, you know, ele electronically available now, thankfully. <laughs> and uh, we, ought, we have a few things like, you know, articles that we feel are particularly good that address things like, you know, window replacement or, uh, or, you know, paint colors and those types of things. If we find something that we think is particularly a well-written and thorough article, then we'll provide something like that to them. Uh, we also, just in the last uh, year, about 18 months ago, we created a brochure that we, where we addressed, where we summarized what is required under, the con under our conservation ordinance uh, if you live, if you have property in the historic district. And we did a direct mail to every property in that oh, okay. district. So we did, we covered about 1,800 properties with those brochures and they were, you know, we, we tried, we, we put some nice graphics on there and we titled it the property owner's handbook, you know, Yeah. and, and, it, and it's their resource. It's, it's not us trying to shove, you know, in, in, uh, regulations down their throat. This is your resource. This is our contact information. We want to work with you. Uh, we want to, you know, make sure that we that we uh, provide them with all the resources that we have. So that's been pretty effective. And then we also do things like if a property comes on the market and we know it's going to change hands, we'll do a door hanger. Uh, okay. That's sort of more or less a, a courtesy reminder. 
that the house is within the boundaries of a designated historic district and any future changes to the property fall under under the conservation ordinance and so that way it's something that the new owner can come in and they know right offhand that you know that that they were that they are in the historic district number one and number two that there is a slightly different procedure for them to follow as far as pulling permits and that type of thing so that's been fairly effective as well those are the probably the primary ways that we've that we've provided information to to the public aside from things you know every now and then we'll have a workshop or a, or a guest speaker come in that that will cover a particular topic mm-hmm. uh, you know just things to keep the homeowners engaged in, in, in what preservation is all about and we I'm sure you're aware that you know May is preservation month and mm-hmm. we as a city pick one week out of May and we have preservation week and so we plan activities during that week that cater to historic property owners and maybe uh, it may be something really fun like a house tour or a walking tour or maybe mm-hmm. something that's more nuts and bolts like you know how do you get your house on a maintenance schedule you know that's an important thing that a lot of folks don't really um, have a grasp on how to do that so mm-hmm. if we're able to kind of help them put that together then then that's an extra way that we can that we can be a resource to yeah and everybody knows that historic homes you know that they're, they're they're special. You have to have that that good maintenance schedule for those, for sure, because <laughs> things will yes. th- things will get a get away from you, if, you right. if you're not careful. And okay, I'm sure you've heard it as much as I have. People say, "Oh, those old houses—they're just maintenance nightmares," you know. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of people say that either out of frustration or they say that because they're trying to convince someone not to buy one. And uh, my response is always, uh, you know. If you find me a house that's maintenance free, then you've found me a house that's disposable. Mm-hmm. You know, because every structure requires maintenance, and the type of maintenance for historic structures may be a little bit different in nature and in effort, <laughs> but it's certainly doable. And if you stay on top of it, it doesn't feel as cumbersome as as if you sort of try to sweep it under the rug and hope that have hope that it goes away. Mm-hmm. So um, that's my two cents on that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I was, I caught uh, five minutes of, of Good Morning Louisiana or something the other day, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they had a guy on there that was pitching his window replacement, whatever, mm-hmm. and I, I got so frustrated with it that I had to turn it off, <laughs> because he was yeah. like, you'll, you'll never have to do maintenance on these windows, and those wood windows <laughs> require so much maintenance, and I was like, yeah, right. but those windows will fall out of your house mm-hmm. before yeah. you get the return on that investment that you're expecting, <laughs> yeah. and yeah. wood windows require a little bit of maintenance, and they will literally last forever, because mm-hmm. how long has your house already been here, and mm-hmm. your windows have lasted you this long already? That's right. You know? That's right. So, yeah, I got you're, really you're, frustrated you're, with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? You're right on target because uh, when, when when someone comes to me and they say I'm, I'm I really want to upgrade my windows, mm-hmm. and I say, you know, how old is your house? 1930. Okay, well, um, those windows have been in there for going on uh, what 90 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you'll find a modern window that has a 90 year warranty then then let's talk about it yeah you know because <laughs> because that window has proven its value for 90 years 
Mm -hmm. um, the modern windows can't do that. It's not mm -hmm. physically possible for them to do that. And I also say, what if a rock hits it? You know, <laughs> if a rock hits it, guess what? It's a new window. It's not in a window right. component. It's a new right. window. You have to replace and the so whole thing. If, if you're looking forward to, to that out-of-pocket expense, then, you know, we, we don't have much else to talk about. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. I just, I was yeah. like, not, I was not prepared <laughs> for that. And I was like, yeah. really? No. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really frustrating, you know, especially given that the window replacement industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. Mm -hmm. And that's their primary concern is getting, you know, the, the misinformation out there that their product is superior. And, uh, and our primary goal is to dispel that myth. And it's not easy because we don't have billions of dollars to spend on. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back and talk about the, the, the national register districts a little bit. Cause mm -hmm. you, you know, you were talking about the hope city one, but I wanted to mm -hmm. ask you, about the local districts in Hattiesburg. There's five of them, right? That's right. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so can you tell us a little bit, just in case there's somebody that, that's going to listen that does maybe not that familiar with it, what's the mm -hmm. difference between a local register district and a national district, a national mm -hmm. register district? Okay. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. It's something that we get from the public quite often, as a matter of fact. The, the local district is created through city ordinance in most cases, and it is uh, a way for the, the city to create a boundary around an area that's been identified as being a cohesive uh, historic district as far as the resources that fall within those boundaries. And once, they're, once it is designated, then it falls under the purview of that historic commission, whether it be preservation or, or conservation. And, and that creates a level of review, of review and protection over that district. The National Register is, is, is both created a different way and it serves a different purpose. It's created through a nomination process uh, that is routed through the state SHPO. Uh, the state SHPO ultimately sends that to the National Park Service and um, they are the final say on what gets uh, placed on the register. And that can take place either through uh, a municipality uh, initiating the process, a private individual can initiate it, for example, for their own house, if they have uh, a house they feel is significant enough to warrant that, then they would go forward with that nomination. And, and once the nomination is passed through the, the State Historic Preservation Office and also signed off by the National Park Service, it's placed on the National Register of historic places as a recognition of its historic value. And I always tell people, you know, it's at its heart, it's a recognition program for mm -hmm. what's considered to be, you know, our country's most important historic assets. Recognition is a lot different from preservation. <laughs> right. uh, and, uh, and, it, and so the national register, even though national sounds much more boating than, than local, it actually provides less protection over the properties than the local district does because you know i think for probably for for good reason most of the of the local powers over preservation are placed with the municipality instead of the federal government and, and as you probably know the only exception to that would be uh if a project involves federal funding uh, such as transportation uh, enhancement funds probably the most popular one that you hear about but if a project mm -hmm. involves federal funding 
then there is a level of review over that project. Doesn't mean that it's going to result in the preservation of the structure uh, of the resource, but it does mean that there will be multiple sets of eyes on it and the prospect of it staying around or, or a lot better than if it's not on the National Register. So that is the primary difference in the two types of districts. And as Hattiesburg has ours, each of those five districts has a boundary laid out under ordinance as our local district. And then within those boundaries, a smaller portion of that is designated as the National Register District. And so if you kind of look at that backwards, probably what happened in most cases is that we created the National Register Districts and then we decided as an extra layer of local protection over those districts, we would we would take that district in and expand the boundaries slightly so mm -hmm. that we would have a, kind of a buffer uh, or a perimeter around that. And so all five of our districts are a local district with a National Register District overlay. Okay. Um, we have one district that, we're, sorry, we have two districts that are on the National Register but not protected locally. And uh, one of those is our university, uh, the University of Southern Mississippi. It has a handful of buildings at, its, at the core of the campus, I think 22 buildings that uh, were built in the first few decades of its development. And those are listed on the National Register, uh, but they're not locally protected. Then we have our downtown area that I mentioned earlier, that's our commercial uh, district, which is on the, on the register, but it's not locally protected. And uh, we're working very hard to change that. Uh, we're hoping that within the next calendar year, or in this calendar year rather, that, that it will fall under local ordinance so that we can uh, have some protection over that. Okay. Okay. Well, that you basically answered my next set of questions too mm -hmm. about the about the overlap and stuff for the, yeah, the districts. Yeah. You know, there I, I don't see any any disadvantage of it being set up that way because when you talk to a large number of folks that have properties in local districts, they happen to fall in that National Register district. Then you can start talking about things like tax incentives that you know that are available to them that that really help when they undertake larger projects. Mm -hmm. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the other organizations that you're involved in, um, mm -hmm. such as the Hattiesburg Historic Downtown Association and mm -hmm. the Mississippi Heritage Trust. Do you find it helpful to, to your position to be involved in those other organizations as well? Oh, most definitely. It, it, it helps to have that network of like-minded people you know, the Downtown Association, as I mentioned earlier, is essentially our main street arm for Hattiesburg. Partnering with them, uh, we partner with them quite often, and, it, and it's very advantageous to have that network to, to, to talk back and forth on how do we approach, you know, different forms of revitalization and, and, and preservation and reinvestment. The, the Downtown Association is very active as far as its committees go. Uh, they have their economic restructuring committee, which, which you know, it meets every single month to talk about, you know, what types of businesses and developments what we'd like to see come into downtown that we don't already have, you know, what is what what type of uh, opportunities are there for that type that those types of uh, new commercial development. And then we also have a committee that looks at design, uh, you know, how can we physically make our downtown, you know, more attractive. How can we make it more walkable? We're matter of fact, that's the the committee that I serve on, and we're we're doing a walkability study right now to 
to look at every block of downtown separately and kind of give it a grade score um, on how walkable it is. And, you know, as you would imagine, walkability includes a wide variety of things. It could be the physical condition of the sidewalks. It could be how much trees and vegetation is there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be, are there places to sit? Are there places to throw your trash? Is there public art? You know, all those things kind of go into that walkability uh, aspect. So, so we're really looking at all those uh, under a microscope right now, which I'm excited about because we have some opportunities there. But that that's a, a very valuable partnership. And then with the Mississippi Heritage Trust, you know, they're our statewide nonprofit, and they are very active in throughout the state in bringing more historic resources to the public's attention. They hold workshops on a regular basis. They hold tours on a regular basis. They 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 don't actually they they do actually own one property in in Jackson, which is an antebellum house that has um, uh, historical ties to a former Mississippi governor. But other than that, they're they're not a property holder. They they do more of the advocacy side of it, mm-hmm. and really do great things. They probably one of the more effective programs that they put into place lately is, you know, it's so important for, especially on the local level for, for folks that are trying to encourage reinvestment and and revitalization. It's so important for them to understand how the developer thinks, you know, we know how things work on our side, but if you're dealing with a developer or multiple developers, who are looking at coming into your your historic district, you know, what um, are they looking for? What in terms of infrastructure, in terms of making their numbers work for a building, um, in terms of physical changes to the building? And so what the Mississippi Heritage Trust has done is they've created what they call a preservation toolkit workshop, and they bring mm-hmm. in a couple of guys who are actively doing that. They're developers, and they give their side of it so that preservationists and those in our realm can understand where the developer is coming from. And it's really interesting because they talk a lot about things like, you know, the financial incentives that are out there being the make or break for their projects. You know, if Mm -hmm. they can't get low income tax credits or if they can't get rehabilitation tax credits, um, if they can't get local incentives, then a lot of times that's the difference in whether or not their project is doable. And so mm-hmm. it's kind of gives you the big picture of how all those things come into play in the developer's mind and gives you a better grasp of what they're looking for. Otherwise, we're just kind of feeling our way through the dark because we know that we want the building saved and we know that we want reinvestment. But the the actual avenues to make that happen, you know, are, we, we're not as versed in that in most cases as preservationists. So. So that's an example of how it's really valuable for us to partner with the, the Heritage Trust because they're offering to kind of fill that void in in, in the understanding of how of the big picture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It sounds like they've got some pretty good programs from from what you're describing. So. They definitely do, and they they go, you know, they do all the traditional things like house tours and walking tours and that type of thing to 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 bring in even those who are not preservation savvy. Um, and once they bring them in and they give them reason to be excited about historic resources, then you kind of go that next step further and show them how important it is to preserve those in resources statewide. It's not, you know, as you know, it's, it's, it's all about 
showing them the value of keeping those resources around um, mm -hmm. versus, you know, new build and new development. And teardowns. Exactly. We, we all know we exactly. don't like. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. Because when you take away, when you, when you have a teardown, you take away an opportunity. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and some people would say, oh, you're creating an opportunity because you're creating a vacant lot. But the reality of it is that whatever dynamics are occurring that made it, made that property blighted to begin with are not going to encourage redevelopment, at least not in the near future. Right. And so those lots are going to stay vacant and they're going to, you know, be the responsibility of someone like the city to come in and cut them on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And of course we assess the cost, our cost of doing that to, to the um, owner as a tax lien. But you know, that that's not the preferable way for, for us to go forward. You know, I think the preferable way is to actually, you know, come to, to, to some fruitful discussions about how we can start bringing those neighborhoods back and stabilizing them. Mm -hmm. This is my favorite thing to ask people because I like mm -hmm. to hear everybody's answers. Um, <laughs> but what is your favorite thing about preservation? My favorite thing about preservation, I would say... I love the fact that it's interdisciplinary, that it involves so many other aspects of, uh, of professional knowledge than just preservation. Um, but I think even more than that, I really like the fact that it transcends buildings and it really comes down to addressing quality of life. Because if we're not surrounding ourselves with meaningful built environment, then quality of life is almost always going to suffer. And so, you know, when I was growing up in Hattiesburg, you know, I I'm, I'm, I'm grew up here and we had lots of opportunities to drive around the city with my grandparents, for example. And I, we didn't, I didn't live close to downtown. So whenever we would go downtown for any reason, then they would say, oh, you wouldn't believe what it used to be like down here. It used to be so vibrant. And mm -hmm. if you had anything to do at all, shopping, bill paying, then you came down here and it was such a wonderful place. And I, and then I just remember even being a young child looking around thinking that's totally contrary to what I'm seeing, you know? Right. And it is very confusing as to, you know, I can't, I could not, I could not relate and identify with, with what they were telling me. So that is what I'm sort of getting at with the quality of life issues is that, you know, that was what everyone appreciated about Hattiesburg was that we were, a, a, you know, a quaint and compact and walkable, connected community. And that was a legitimate framework for a high quality of life. And whenever you start getting into sprawl and whenever you start getting into stretching your infrastructure as far as it'll go without the promise of being able to maintain that infrastructure, you know, these are all things that, over time, you may not see it next year or even 10 years from now, but over time, those are things that you're going to realize are detrimental to quality of life and not mm -hmm. adding to them. So preservation, in my mind, because I'm a big picture guy, is how do we bring it back to the basics? How do we transcend just, I like that building or I like that architecture and really bring it into, you know, let's cr create Let's surround ourselves with something that makes sense as a quality of life enhancer. Mm -hmm. You know, we, I went to, a, just as a side note, I went to a, 
one of those open mic nights where people can get up and say pretty much anything they want. And mm-hmm. uh, it was surprising to me how many people talked about old Hattiesburg and kind of their connection or their nostalgia about old Hattiesburg. And, uh, and then some of the younger people, like college students, for example, got up there and they talked about, you know, oh, I like spending time with my friends. You know, they, some of them live downtown and we did this or we did that. And it was such a fun experience, you know, and I, and, and I got up there and I said, I love hearing your stories about the activities, you know, the things that you associate with Hattiesburg and with downtown. You know, I just want to remind everyone that, you know, the backdrop for those experiences was downtown or Mm -hmm. a historic neighborhood. And the reason why that experience meant something to you was because that backdrop enhanced your experience, you know, and I'm a firm believer that that is the case. And, and, uh, you know, a lot of eyes kind of got wide, you know, like some, maybe some light bulbs went off (laughs) and, uh, you, you just can't have, you think about places like you think about big cities like New York, but you also think about the smaller places that draw people in like uh, Austin mm-hmm. and, uh, and Charleston and places like that, that, that when you get there, it's compact, it's walkable, it's quaint, it's community oriented. It just has that warm feeling to it. And anything that happens in that environment, you're going to remember it more than you did if you were on the edge of town in the middle of a parking lot. Right. You know? And so to me, that was not a concise answer, <laughs> but to me, that's my favorite thing about preservation is that it does transcend buildings. Mm-hmm. I, I absolutely understand what you're saying. I, I remember do, doing something similar with my grandparents. They lived in, in a small town in South Georgia called Jackson. And yep. they, you know, we used to do the same thing. We would go down, I would speak spend summer break or whatever down there and they would Mm -hmm. we would drive around town and and the town square the old town square Mm -hmm. you know as you see in a lot of these towns in georgia and throughout the south with with some sort of park or maybe a maybe a capitol building or or something Mm -hmm. in in the square it was just dead always no matter when it was or what time of the day everything was sort of closed and shuttered Mm -hmm. and it just Mm -hmm. wasn't like the way it was when when my grandparents first moved there and then right. and now right. now you see all these downtowns like really revitalized and mm-hmm. and coming back and it's really mm-hmm. nice to see it definitely people like is that. It, it definitely is and they do like that and i think even the younger generation uh you know millennials you hear a lot about how attracted they are to these more compact and and accessible areas Mm-hmm. Uh, we we have a couple of larger buildings in our downtown that stayed vacant for a very long time, for decades. And the way that they were brought back to life is we had a developer um, come in and turn them into apartments. And the apartments were fortunately at a price point to where young professionals and some college students could come come in uh, and and be uh, you know residents of downtown. And that was a game changer. You know that was uh, five years ago now. And we've seen some things happen as a, as a spinoff from that uh, that we would not have seen, you know, if we didn't have that residential component downtown. So, um, and we actually just got news that that same developer has bought three more buildings. Uh, and his intention is to do, you know, very similar things as far as mixed use, do some retail on the first floor and some apartments and maybe even some condo space. So, um, you know, and he's taking tax credits uh, for mm-hmm. him. So he's, he's going 
uh, routing everything through the SHPO and is on the up and up. And, and uh, it's very encouraging to see that type of activity going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think I'll go down to my last question for you. Mm -hmm. What advice do you have for someone looking to get into the preservation field? Oh, gosh, let's see. I would say, just like any discipline, to to be open-minded when you're going into it, but also always be thinking about what your niche is going to be, because I think you can be more effective if you don't try to, to do everything that preservation involves, if you just try to find where your passion lies and, and focus on uh, developing your your knowledge and your interest um, of those areas, you know that's you know inevitably that's gonna that's gonna translate to uh, you know success as far as what you're able to accomplish. It's it's just it's such a broad field now that you can't just say I'm a preservationist. I'm gonna go for it. I'm gonna do everything and 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 you know have a, a have my a couple of fingers in each thing and and mm -hmm. keep it going. It's just, it's too spread thin, you know, and, and so my advice is to, to, you know, if you don't already have a passion, uh, I mean, a particular area going into it, kind of like my, my particular interest was downtown revitalization. So, you know, I mean, I've, I've pretty much kept that. I haven't veered away from it too much, but, but if you don't already have that, you know, be open going into it, but always have that in the back of your mind that I really need to find what what it is that I'm going to, to be able to put all of my, all of my passion and efforts into that, that will translate to being effective, you know, mm -hmm. because you, you can be preservation is not immune from being, uh, uh you know, an ineffective <laughs> practitioner. It's, it's, uh, just like anything you, you, you've got to decide what your end goal is and what you, what you want to accomplish, or you're sort of going to just be, you know, floating down the river with a raft and and that's that's not that's never been at the heart of what preservation is all about has been maintaining the status quo because you're you're having to you're having to really you know change the thought patterns of people and and change perspectives and um and you and it i just find that it's easier to do that if you believe if you believe in, in, in your heart and in your passion, that that is a worthwhile pursuit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think a lot of times people can tell, uh, you know, when you're really passionate about about it and you're talking mm -hmm. to someone who maybe doesn't know that much about preservation and, you, and you're mm -hmm. just having a conversation, they can really tell, um, you know, that they can they can hear it. And I, I think that that, yeah, That's I like right. that. I like your advice. That's, that's good advice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Okay. I think that's all we have for you today, Russell. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Well, it's been my pleasure. I appreciate it, Taylor. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let us know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. If you would like to get a direct link to our guests' information or just want to give us a shout, you can contact us by visiting our website at preservationdestination.com. There you can check out each show's notes and much more information about the podcast. If you prefer good old-fashioned social media, we are also on Instagram and Facebook as Preservation Destination. Feel free to give us a like and click the follow button to stay informed about upcoming episodes. 
Again, thank you for being with us, and we hope you'll join us again next time here on Preservation Destination.